Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you sent your son to die in our place that we could bring our burden to you. Thank you that his yoke is light and easy. And we are eternally thankful. We do think of Jim naturally at this time this morning, pray that you would heal his back, that uh, you would bring him to a quick and speedy full recovery, that he would be able to go about those things that you've put on his heart that he desires to do uh, as a way to serve you and live for your kingdom. As we come to your word, we do ask that it would have its intended effect, that it would do to us that we would believe what it says. Your law is perfect. It revives the soul. Your word is perfect. It rejoices our hearts. And so, Lord, we need you to work that in us this morning, and we ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, so if you want to turn there, we'll start our time by reading that together. Matthew 5, 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus has just finished the Beatitudes 1 through 12, act as an introduction to this sermon, the sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. I believe uh, the Beatitudes uh, describe the characteristics of genuine believers. And his aim here is to encourage the blessed, that is, those who long for his kingdom, those who've just been described in verses 1 through 12, to influence those around them toward the kingdom for the glory of God, despite the likelihood of persecution. They're to influence the world to be better, which is to impact souls for Christ. The blessed don't seek their own glory in this, but the Father's. And so Jesus encourages the blessed to be who they are. Humble, meek, hungry for Christ, pure in heart, zealous ministers of reconciliation. They are alone are those who have the truth, and they are on a mission for their king. They're not their own. Nate Saint, the, the famous missionary pilot to Ecuador, who gave his life for Christ and his kingdom along with Jim Elliott and that crew. 
He told of a time when the Lord brought to his attention that he was not living for Christ, but for his own selfish desires. And upon that realization, he was shamed. He wrote, my life wasn't my own. The Lord had called me to be a gospel missionary. This was the life I had thrown away deliberately. Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, followers of Jesus Christ are not their own. And they're necessarily called to walk the beat of a different drum. Their relationship with God, the fact that they've been reconciled to their creator, is to so change their lives that they'll influence the world for the kingdom. And they can't help but do that. They are to be salt, be light to the glory of God. And uh, if you are looking for an outline, that would probably be it. Be salt, point one. Be light, point two. To the glory of God, point three. So verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth. So here we, we simply have a declaration. You are. You are the salt of the earth. Notice Jesus uses the third person during most of the Beatitudes, switches to the second person in verse 11. Here he stays with that second person, but he makes it emphatic. He's emphasizing who they are. We might say, uh, you, yourselves. He's trying to get across to his disciples, uh, to those who are truly his, that they really are the salt of the earth. That phrase, salt of the earth, has been interpreted, interpreted in a variety of ways over the years. The most popular explanation among conservative scholars and Bible teachers today seems to be that Jesus is highlighting the preserving nature of salt in relation to food. So John MacArthur, for example, says no doubt its use as a preservative is what Jesus had mostly in view here. Another great expositor, D.A. Carson, says regarding this verse, above all, salt was used as a preservative rubbed into meat, a little salt would slow decay. And so the application then flowing from that understanding is that disciples of Christ are to have a preserving influence on society, just as salt has a preserving influence on meat. Believers stem the tide of corruption in society. Now, I do believe followers of Christ have a preserving influence on society and stem the tide of corruption. They keep society from being even worse than, than it is, than they are. I'm not convinced, though, that that's what this text is saying, because if we continue to read on in our text, it says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So the text qualifies for us that particular aspect or nature of salt that it's referring to, taste, and not preservation. Luke 14, 34 closely repeats the same teaching, says salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Here again, we see the attribute of salt highlighted as the flavor it produces, its taste. So in Matthew and Luke, the focus seems to be clearly on flavor. Taste is the focus of these texts. Now, Matthew often alludes to the Old Testament. And so let's just look for a moment to see what we can learn about salt from the Old Testament that might apply here. One text we find is Leviticus 2.13. Moses is relaying the Lord's instruction to the Israelites regarding grain offerings. And he says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. 
You should not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So here salt was added to grain offerings to season them. This was part of the, the fragrant offering to the Lord and was an integral part of the covenant with them, with him. In Numbers 18, 19, we read, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So as we read those and think about this, we ask the question, what does salt add to the sacrifices and what does it have to do with the covenant? Well, in that Leviticus text, it said the offering was seasoned with salt. And uh, this is the case throughout the Old Testament, salt seasoned sacrifices and offerings. To season something means you, you make it better. Uh, the offerings were to have salt added to them, presumably so that they were as excellent as they possibly could be. So that helps us with the sacrifices. Then in Numbers, we see the covenant emphasized. Gordon Wenham comments on, on that Numbers passage and says that it could be talking about salt as a seasoning for food, he says, which would point to a shared meal between the two parties of the covenant as symbolic of their friendship and the binding nature of their agreement. So how does all this fit with this Matthew text, if at all? Well, I've already given you some other perspectives on that text from reputable men, but I believe in order to do justice to our text, we've got to maintain that it's talking about flavor or taste or seasoning. Uh, so I think we can say at least that, and in light of those Old Testament witnesses and usage of salt to season these grain offerings and covenantal sacrifices, or it's even called the, the covenant of salt, I believe this points, again, to salt being something that would enhance the sacrifice or the, the covenant in some way. It made the sacrifice excellent. In some, in some way, it was thought of along those terms of, of bringing something to the sacrifice that made it excellent or to the covenant that made it excellent. So perhaps the salt of the earth can be compared to the, the salt covering a sacrifice. It was necessary in order to make the sacrifice or the covenant acceptable to the Lord. And so, in a sense, disciples of Christ are to be about the work of preparing people to be acceptable sacrifices before the Lord. Now, if you disagree with me on that interpretation, it is not going to hurt my feelings. I would love to have more time to get into those Old Testament texts and, and learn more about what's going on there. But I think we can definitively say that followers of Christ are to impact the earth positively. The word earth is, is talking about the people walking on the earth, not the terrestrial ball itself. Followers of Christ are to make the earth, the people who inhabit the earth, better or maybe more theologically accurate, acceptable. And in, in light of the Beatitudes, I think this clearly means they are to be ambassadors for the king and his kingdom, which if they are peacemakers would mean that they are to prepare the world to be living sacrifices and so necessarily confront people with Christ. They proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, both with their words and with their lives. And like I said earlier, they can't help but do that because of who God has made them. He has made them the blessed. And so I, I think that it's as if Christ is saying, you, 
God's true people are to function in such a way as to make others living sacrifices acceptable to God, which in God's economy is to drastically improve souls. Have you ever been around someone who made you more like Jesus? I know I've benefited greatly from being around some godly men who gave me a clear vision of what a godly father and husband could look like. They made me better. They made me a better living sacrifices and in other ways. Sometimes that's from a living person. Sometimes that's from someone we read a biography of. One of my brothers and friends is from the 1800s. His name is R.C. Chapman. I doubt many of you would maybe have heard of him. He's not one of the most well-known saints of old. Obviously, I've never met him, but he has nonetheless had an influence on my life for the better as I've read some of his biographies and as he has apparently had a good influence on many who are around him in his day. Chapman opened his home to minister to missionaries on furlough or to anyone else who might need a spiritual retreat. He made that one of his ministries, and uh, he was known for that. One such visitor was a missionary from China named J. Norman Case. Now listen to, to Case tell of his time at Chapman's home. He says, the whole ordering of the household had in view not only the comfort, but the general spiritual, mental, and physical well-being of the many who came there for rest. Love and reverence for the scriptures and subjection thereto formed the very atmosphere of the house. <clears throat> there too, <clears throat> the table talk was turned to spiritual ends as I had never to the same degree elsewhere known. An ordinary meal became an agape meal, more helpful than many a long meeting. It was an ideal home for a tired or discouraged worker or for a despondent or perplexed Christian. There one seemed naturally to be in that state of mind, to hear the question and heed the exhortation to one of old. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And then he says, a stay there of days or weeks could not but deeply influence the whole aftercourse of a young Christian. <clears throat> R.C. Chapman made people better. He encouraged them towards righteousness. He encouraged them toward Christ. R.C. Chapman was salty. And all believers to some degree <clears throat> are salty as well. All true believers to some degree move others to Christ. And so that is the, the declaration. <clears throat> you are the salt of the earth. Excel still more. Excel still more. But now comes encouragement in the form of a warning. Christ goes on and says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's no longer good for anything except clearing a path, right? If you throw salt on your yard, try that. Try a big bucket of salt to melt the ice on your driveway and dump it on your yard and see what happens. It'd be interesting. So this is a warning for disciples not to lose their functionality, <clears throat> right? Not to lose their functionality. And, and, and here's the question. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Technically, Salt can't lose its saltiness, I'm told. Sodium chloride is a stable compound. Salt is always salty. But the salt used in the ancient world was gathered from marshes and so forth, didn't go through a refining process as our salt, and so had uh, many impurities in it. <clears throat> and in this case, it was possible for 
the deposit of minerals called salt that they were calling salt to lose its flavor. Either way, this is really a rhetorical question. The answer for us is provided. If salt were to lose its saltiness, <clears throat> it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The clear point is that salt, if it has lost its function, if it could lose its function, is good for nothing. At the end of the Beatitudes in verses 11 and 12, we learn that persecution is normal for followers of Jesus Christ. Those who are truly Christ's disciples should expect persecution in this life. And when persecution is, <clears throat> and when a person is persecuted on account of Christ, they should rejoice because it's evidence that their faith is genuine. Because the heroes of their faith, the prophets who were true believers, were also persecuted on account of righteousness. And so right after those encouraging words, we have this warning. I believe the text is essentially saying persecution will come and the temptation will be to conform. The temptation will be to keep the kingdom to oneself and hide out until Christ returns. That'll be the temptation. The temptation is going to be to withdraw from society or from those who might persecute you. The temptation will be to blend in with society and, and not rock the boat at all. Just kind of go with the flow. That'll be the temptation. And Jesus says, don't do this. Fight that temptation. Society needs you to be God's people. Stay true to character. You are salt. Perform your function. Be the blessed. Influence those around you towards righteousness, towards Christ. Convict them by your righteous life. Convict them with the gospel, the words you say. You see, your function in society depends on your otherness. If salt were to lose its flavor, it would lose its purpose. If you stop acting like the blessed, if you stop being who you are, then you will have lost your purpose. Your function depends on maintaining your character. So looking at the description of the blessed and the Beatitudes... Uh, this would be encouragement to continue to be poor in spirit. Don't forget your spiritual bankruptcy apart from the Messiah. And don't care about anybody finding out about that. In fact, that's actually a good thing. Maintain a humble heart. One that understands how desperately you need a Savior. And let other people know how desperate they are for a Savior. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Never cease to pursue Christ with a passion. Constantly remind yourself of the mercy you have received and let that motivate you to be merciful to others. Live a gospel-saturated life. You've been given a pure heart, so tenaciously fight to keep your heart free from defilement. Pursue holiness. Don't wallow in sin. Don't, don't make it your friend. Don't invite it to be your pet. Make a clean break from it. Never lose your awe over the peace that Christ's blood has made between you and your creator. Love this peace and, and refuse to hide that peace from others. Revel in your privileged status as a member of the kingdom and rejoice when you are treated like the prophets because that is a testimony that you are of their ilk. So don't shrink back in fear. Be who you are. 
This isn't talking about losing your salvation because that's not the point of it. The point is encouragement, right? It's, it's an exhortation. This is encouragement to boldly be the blessed. This is encouragement to embrace who you are in, in Christ and to live up to that noble identity. The assumption is that, that true believers are going to embrace their opportunity for influence. You are the blessed the world needs the, the blessed, and so don't sequester yourself to a, a monastery. Don't hole up somewhere and wait for the rapture. Yeah, things are getting crazy out there. I know. I've read the news as well. But don't think, you know what? The Amish have it going for them. Let's go ahead and do that. Do what you were meant to do. Bring flavor to the world. Influence those around you toward godliness. Be the blessed. Dana and I have a phrase uh, we use with each other, um, and that's this. The world needs more Dave and Donnas. <clears throat> Dave and Donna were this saintly, uh, elderly couple who ministered to us when we were newlyweds stationed with the Navy in Puerto Rico. Uh, Dana would tell you that she is a different person today drastically because of Donna's influence. She's a stronger, sweeter follower of Jesus Christ because of Donna's holy life. And then I regularly think to myself, how would Dave handle this situation? If he were here, what would he be thinking? How would he be acting? I regularly think that. Their righteous lives convicted us. What they were living for convicted us. Their simple Biblical teaching and application convicted us. I read a few, I read a uh, book review several years ago of a book that this famous pastor had released. I don't know much about this guy really other than he was, is a famous preacher, pastor. He might be a pretty good guy. I, I don't really know if you get to know him, but he wrote this book on marriage. And in this book, he gets quite graphic about what he considers to be permissible regarding the marriage bed. And he essentially puts out his opinion that people need to know about our sexual culture in order to minister to the culture. And so he goes into some gory details. No. No. That's not what we need. The world needs more Dave and Donna's. The world needs more people whose very lives are a walking conviction. The world doesn't need more cool and relevant Christians. It doesn't need any more Christian celebrities. It needs more people who are extremely salty. The world needs the blessed to be what they were called to be, the salt of the earth. But not only are, are you the blessed, uh, true believers, not only are you the salt of the earth, our text goes on and says that you're also, though, the light of the world. Isn't that amazing? So we have here another declaration. You are the light of the world. The disciples are the salt of the earth, and they're also the light of the world. Back in Matthew 4.16, Jesus declared himself to be the light of Isaiah 9.2, which says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of darkness, deep darkness, on them has light shine. Jesus is the light. And the light in, in that context, and 
in Matthew, we understand, is also not just Jesus, but it's also we could expand that to be the gospel light, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. It's, it's Christ's person and his work, what he accomplished on the cross on behalf of sinners. That's the light. So in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those who follow him will have salvation. Darkness is associated with those who are not right with God. Light is associated with joy and those who are truly God's people. Darkness is coupled with sin. Light is coupled with righteousness. Darkness is ignorance. Light is understanding. Darkness is destruction. Light is reconstruction. Isaiah 42, 6 says of the Lord's servant, the servant Messiah, Jesus, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The light has dawned on the Gentiles, and that light is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who will usher in the return of the exiles, the one who will bring about reconciliation, between God and man, the one who will set the captives free, the one who commands the devil and he obeys, the one who will save his people from their sins, the one who will be, bring peace for all nations. That's what this is about. The king and his kingdom are light. The light of, the light of Christ, the solution for mankind's problem has, has finally dawned. The rays of his lovely grace have, have completely filled up the valley. The beams of his righteousness have lit up hearts with joy. Jesus is the light. And then now, amazingly, and, and, and wonderfully so, followers of Jesus are also said to be the light of the world. They are not those who win salvation for the world, but they are those who point to the source of salvation for the world. They are those who have received the light and so radiate the light. They're like those from some sort of superhero show that have played around with radioactive material just a little bit too long and, and they're all aglow. They are those who are righteous. They no longer live in the darkness of sin. They no longer hide in those dark corners, but in the light. They are those who know the good news. And they know the solution to mankind's problems. They are those who are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and so they reflect his image. And so, as he is the light, they are the light. So the decoration is that followers of Christ are themselves the light of the world. Many of you have probably heard of George Mueller, uh, the man from England who built several orphanages in the 1800s on nothing but prayer. Actually, he and R.C. Chapman were friends. We know George Mueller. We don't know R.C. Chapman. Um, but you might not know that George Mueller's faith was fanned into flame by a few bright lights. Mueller was in his early 20s and, and was really flailing around with his, his life a bit. And then he met Henry Craik and the believers in Bristol. Mueller writes of this meeting. To me, it was like a new conversion. Now I had heard a clear gospel that I could understand. The Bible became a new book to me. The brotherly love shown was such as I had never seen before. The godly and simple lives of even wealthy people who had moved in the highest society 
was such as to carry one back to the days of the apostles. And I felt this was indeed Christianity of a high type. These folks in Bristol were the light of the world. And Mueller was like one of those glow-in-the-dark stars that you can stick on your ceiling in the kids' room or whatever, that if you hold it up to the lamp, the closer that Mueller got to the lamp and the longer he was exposed, the brighter he shined. The text goes on and we see another series of encouragements. Jesus says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Cities in these ancient days were frequently built of white limestone, and so a city on a hill would be quite brilliant, couldn't be hidden. But also with Matthew's Old Testament focus, especially on Isaiah, it's possible that Christ is referring to Isaiah 2.2, where it is prophesied, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Then verse 5, we read, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So it seems Jesus is referring to that passage. He is the light and all the nations will run to him and that light cannot be hidden. It was not meant to be hidden but to attract the world. And we see this today as people from all nations flock to the one true Messiah of Mount Zion. And so cities on hills cannot be hidden. They were not meant to be hidden. In verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. So just as a city on a hill is not trying to hide, nor would someone light a lamp and put it under a basket, that defeats the purpose for, for why the lamp was lit. It's not hidden, verse 15, the second half of that, but placed on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The purpose of lighting the lamp was to give light to the entire house. It was to be of use to others. It would make no sense to light a lamp and then hide it. That would be pointless. Lamps were intended to light up a house. So can you imagine if you went through your house tonight covered up all of your light fixtures with black paper, and then this evening turned on the lights. That would be ridiculous. The lights are there to serve a purpose, to give light. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others. Again, Jesus just told those who are his true followers, those who fit into this category of that description of the Beatitudes, that they should expect persecution and rejoice when it becomes because they're in good company. Just like the prophets. They're truly God's people. And God's true people throughout history have generally not been treated well. They've been beaten, abused, reviled, crucified, ridiculed, and tortured. And so the temptation for the blessed, as we have said, might be to, to hide out. The temptation might be to not let anyone know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Kind of a closet follower. The temptation might be to to blend in as much as possible so that you can avoid persecution. Avoid people thinking that you're, you're crazy. You're one of those. But Jesus says, don't do that. That that'd be like lighting a lamp and hiding it. You're the blessed for a reason. 
And so just as lamps are intended to bring light to a house in the same way, so let your light shine before others. He said earlier that the light was the gospel, was the good news of the kingdom. We said the light had dawned with the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. And we said the kingdom is characterized by righteousness. And you, followers of Jesus Christ, the blessed, are the light. So spread this light to others. Be who you are. Be the blessed. And so salt losing its saltiness and, and light not shining is really a hypothetical possibility. Those who are genuine believers, they will shine. They might be tempted not to shine. And so we have this encouragement, this exhortation, but they will shine. Wayne Grudem writes, though we do not find ourselves surrounded by a visible light, there is a brightness, a splendor, or a beauty about the manner of life of a person who deeply loves God, and it is often evident to those around such a person. So why shine? Verse 16, so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Be salt, be light to the glory of God. You know, John 3.16, we know for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. God loves us and sent his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But love was not God's only purpose in salvation. You might even say it wasn't his primary purpose in salvation. There was a greater purpose. His glory. God is about his own glory. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, he says, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Isaiah 42, 8. Yahweh is always about his own glory. In Philippians 2, we learn of Christ's wonderful humility displayed in, in taking on human flesh and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. All of this this grand plan of redemption to the glory of the Father. It's not all about us. And those who long for the king and his kingdom get this to some degree, and hopefully we get it in increasing measure. It's not about them. It's not about us, but the glory of the Father. Everything God does is for his own glory. And this is not some egotistical maneuver on God's part, it's right. I've heard it put this way. When we see a fine painting, we want to find out who painted the painting so we can give the proper accolades. If we're looking at that painting and someone's standing by it, 
is there, and we mistaken them for the painter, and, and we start uh, treating them like that, and, and understanding that and giving them praise, hey, man, you did a great job when you painted that, most likely they're going to stop us and say, I didn't, I didn't paint it. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just selling it, or I'm just an admirer like you. Isn't it? You know, it is awesome, right? They're going to deflect to the, the painter. The, the artist is so-and-so over there. You know, that's the one who you want to speak with. And we would get it. We would understand that. You see, God can't help but receive glory and demand glory because he is glorious. That, that is who he is. It's just the truth. He can't deny who he is. For him to deny who he is, that would be tragic. So it's right for him to receive all praise, all glory, all honor. If the artist is excellent, no one has a problem giving the artist the proper accolades. And so it is with our Father. He alone is eternally worthy of glory. It simply just is who he is. And so persecution is going to come, and the temptation is going to be to shrink back in fear. Don't. Society needs you to shine light before others. But more than that, God saved you. He made you to bless so you could bring him glory. What a privilege. When you're humbled by the gospel, and so are humble, God receives glory. When you hunger and thirst for him and are red hot in your zeal for him, and so set others on fire, for him, God receives glory. When you mourn over the sin in your life and in the world around you, and so you long for the day when, when, when you will no longer sin against your Lord, God receives glory. When you're given a pure heart and so battle sin in your own life, when you live such a holy life that others just can't help but notice something different there, God receives glory. When you love the king of peace and can't help but spread that news of the king, the one you love, your master, savior, friend, God receives glory. And when you are persecuted for righteousness, when you are reviled because of who you are, the blessed, and you respond with joy because you are living for a heavenly country, God receives glory. When George Mueller, R.C. Chapman, and Dave and Donna influence people for Christ, God receives glory. But what all that has in common is that it requires living in society. And so both images, right, the salt and the light, are, are meant to encourage and to exhort true believers not to, to shrink back from the threat of persecution. You were saved for a purpose, the glory of God. Be salt, be light to his glory. The salt's not salty on its own, uh, nor does light appear from nowhere. Both of those concepts point to the source, our Heavenly Father. He's made us the salt of the earth. He's made us the light through our connection with Jesus Christ. When he's revealed in our lives, he receives the praise of men. Really, this is talking about salvation and the fruit of salvation. Salvation, God makes us the blessed. The fruit of salvation, basically the rest of that sermon. Uh, when you are the blessed, you'll ex exhibit the character of the blessed and you'll influence others. So don't hide who you are. 
This isn't a call to, to broadcast your good works. We have warnings against that in other texts. This is encouragement not to shrink back in fear, but to be bold ambassadors of the king and his kingdom. The king wants the glory due his name and will receive the glory due his name. But he's given the blessed an enormous privilege to be his ambassadors. And so when you live out the life of the blessed in society, this brings God glory. Men will see your good works and praise your Father who's in heaven. Uh, we're to expect persecution, but it's not all persecution. Some will see you, you living an otherworldly life, and just, they're just going to be confused. Others will see you living an otherworldly life and persecute you. They'll see you as some kind of threat to their peace and comfort. But some will see you living an otherworldly life and praise your heavenly Father. Perhaps speaking that they come to know the Lord as well. And we see that happening. Or perhaps speaking about the day of judgment. Maybe even both of those. When all eyes will clearly understand them and your life lived before them will be something that convicts them and they'll be forced to praise the Father because of your witness at that day. And this purpose is why you were saved. You know, many other religions encourage good works, but not for the motivation of God's glory. Most religions encourage good works so you can earn your salvation, your standing with God, or so that you can move up the heavenly status ladder or whatever. Mormons, for example, perform good works so that they might one day become gods of their own planet. Jehovah Witnesses perform good works so that they might enter paradise. Health, wealth, and prosperity adherents perform good works so that they might receive material blessings in this life. All false religions have some sort of kickback for good works. But brothers and sisters, God so loved you that he saved you and he has given you the privilege of bringing him glory. The blessed don't want to see, receive that praise. They want Christ to be praised. That's why it is so unchristian, so anti-Christian to boast or to brag in anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that amazing? His glory is our motivation. When we love the, the king and his kingdom, we'll be proud of our citizens citizenship and rightly so but we'll be even prouder of the one who bought the citizenship for us with his blood he'll be the one we want to brag about and so the blessed are those who cannot help but direct all praise to him he is worthy to receive glory and so this is why it doesn't make sense to try to conform to the world the blessed want the world to notice the difference and so praise their heavenly father and so they hunger and thirst after righteousness and continue to hunger, hunger and thirst after righteousness. They seek to be like Christ. If, if we blend in with the world, then we're good for nothing. We should be thrown out and used for making paths. You are the salt 
and the light. Not the world. You are to be an influence on the world. Not the other way around. Not the world on you. So Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. I think Paul was simply regurgitating Christ's words here. Pursue holiness. Pursue otherworldliness. Be radical about it. Be a fanatic. What would happen if you lived up to your fanatical dreams? And you, brothers and sisters, I know you have some. What would happen if, for example, you got up at 5 a.m. to memorize scripture? What would happen if you formed calluses on your knees from your constant prayers for the souls of men? What would happen if you streamlined your finances and went without in some areas in order to give your extra to those ministering the gospel to Muslims? What would happen if you acted on all your good intentions and pursued holiness finally with zeal? What if you loved people the way you wanted to love them, the way that you envisioned that it's possible that you can, could love them in the name of Christ? What if you shared Christ with the boldness that, that you fantasize about, that you so long for? I'll tell you what would happen. You would influence people for eternity. You would move them toward Christ. You would be accused, along with the disciples in the book of Acts, of turning the world upside down. But none of that will ever happen so long as we allowed the world to influence us and retreat because we don't want to be persecuted. Perhaps we could say that the degree to which the world and its philosophies influence us is the degree to which we are being salt and light. We, the blessed, we are the salt and the light of the world. And for over 2,000 years, Christ has been shining his light, sprinkling his salt through faithful followers. And so I hope this passage encourages us to press on and not shrink back in fear in this day and age. I hope this passage encourages us to influence, influence others to Christ and to be the salt and the light of the world. I hope we link arms and encourage each other to be bold in this way, and I think that that is what it will require. And I hope this passage encourages us to revel in the high privilege we have to bring God glory in this exact way. So go, be salt, be light, to the glory of God. Excel still more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that salvation is your work, not ours. You made us the blessed. You made us poor in spirit. Help us to continue to be poor in spirit and live out the application of that before the world. And we understand 
very clearly. We need your Spirit's help in this. So we express our neediness and dependence upon you to continue to be the salt and to be the light of the world with boldness. And we ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen.